Well, we return in our preaching series today to the text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and, 9 and 10, and the question, who are the chosen people of God today? We're taking up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Now look at that text in 1 Peter 2, 9, where Peter says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who are the chosen people of God today? That's the question. And there can be little doubt how Peter answers that question. Just read my text again and you shall see. Peter designates the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as the chosen people of God. But the big question, of course, is how to understand this in relationship to Old Testament Israel. And that is not an easy question to answer. And furthermore, we need to understand how this applies to us practically today and not get lost in all of the theological questions which are going to take up the bulk of our focus this morning. I have four parts I want to address, and the first one is just to remind us of the Christian's amazing position. And that's what Peter is talking about in verses 9 and 10. Five descriptive phrases, all from the Old Testament, all in the Old Testament applied to national Israel. And four of them we looked at in our previous message, and we're going to be looking more closely at the fifth this morning. But notice again what Peter says, but you, the opening words of verse 9, but you, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. But you, in contrast to the people spoken of immediately before, the unbelievers, the ones who had rejected the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ, They had been disobedient to the message of the gospel, disobedient to God's bringing his Messiah into the world and calling upon men to receive him. They rejected him. Initially, that, of course, speaks of the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews, and Israel generally. They had rejected him, and Peter broadens that out, really, to apply to anyone who rejects the gospel and rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who reject the cornerstone, are in one category, but you who have believed on Christ, you who are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in a different category, and here's the description of what applies to you. You are, number one, a chosen generation, words taken from Isaiah 43.20. Number two, a royal priesthood, language from Exodus 19.6. Number three, a holy nation, Also language from Exodus 19.6, exactly, word for word, letter for letter, as it's found in the Septuagint. And fourthly, God's own special people, Uh, a general paraphrase of the language found in Exodus 19.5 and Isaiah 43.21. Exodus 19.5 calls Israel, quote, a special treasure to me above all people. And Isaiah 43.21 calls Israel this people, I have formed for myself. And Peter takes those phrases and he says, you are God's own special people. 
And then number five, the people of God, verse 10. And here's where we're focusing today. Who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And Peter draws this language from the book of Hosea. The portion we read a moment ago. And these words, particularly from Hosea 1.10 and Hosea 2.1 and Hosea 2.23. Those three verses. And he says, speaking to his readers, to Christians, primarily Gentile, though could well be Jews among them, people who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to them, you were once not a people, but now are the people of God. You once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We've seen language like this before in the New Testament. It has been used by Paul to describe Gentiles who once were strangers to God's grace outside the covenants of promise, but now have been brought near through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter uses that same kind of language, but now very specifically quoting from the prophecy of Hosea. And as Peter quotes it, it seems that these words would apply to Gentiles. You were once not a people, that would be Gentiles, but now are the people of God if you believe in Christ. Once had not obtained mercy, that would be Gentiles, but now have obtained mercy again if you have trusted in Christ. And so the Christian's amazing position is what Peter sets before his readers and what he sets before us this morning. And I don't want us to lose sight of that even as we delve a little deeper into the language that Peter uses and the implications of it. And so number one, the Christian's amazing position. Number two, understanding Hosea's prophecy. And I want us to go back into Hosea's prophecy, and you'll need to turn back there with me for a moment. Back to Hosea chapter 1 and 2. And let's look more carefully at these words of Hosea, this message of God to his people, Israel and Judah, this message of judgment, this warning, this pronouncement of God's judgment upon them. Let's look at it. It is a message of God A message of judgment to an adulterous people. And we read it earlier, and I'll just simply point out the general drift of what's taking place here. By the command of God, Hosea the prophet takes to himself an adulterous wife. That, of course, is an illustration. It is a vivid illustration for those who will see it, that what Hosea has done in taking an adulterous wife... God finds himself in that position with Israel. Israel has become an adulterous people. They have committed spiritual adultery. They have gone after other gods. They are bowing down to other idols. Israel, the northern kingdom, has already done so. And Judah, the southern kingdom, is already moving in that direction. Judgment has already begun to take place upon Israel and shortly will follow upon Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Hosea obediently takes this wife who is an immoral woman, who is a prostitute, and from this woman, of, by this woman, he has three children. The first one is a son who is named Jezreel, verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Jehu was a king in the north who had uh, decimated the house of Ahab, and that was to bring judgment upon Ahab, but nevertheless he'd done so in a very cruel 
and ungodly way. And God said, now I'm going to bring judgment upon him. And the word Jezreel means God will scatter. God will scatter. He's going to scatter Israel. And indeed he did. They were scattered out of their land and throughout the nations of the world. A second daughter was born, or a second child was born, the first daughter. And this daughter, God says, named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. That Lo is no or not. You'll see that twice here in this one and the next name. No mercy. Ruhamah is mercy or pity. And this is no pity. God will take no pity upon his people. God will show no mercy to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then a third child is born, this time a second son. And God says in verse 9, by the way, the second child was in verse 6. God says of this son in verse 9, call him Lo-Ami. Ami is people, Lo is not. And so this means not a people or not my people. God is saying through this illustrative manner, you who formerly were my people, I no longer consider to be my people. You are not my people anymore. That's God's pronouncement. A message of judgment to an adulterous people. But then God turns right around and extends mercy to the very same people that he has just pronounced judgment upon. Verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brethren, My people, and to your sisters, Mercy is shown. You see? The this, this second and third name, Lo, Ruhama, no mercy, lo ami, not my people, but how that's reversed. Say, you are my people. Say, mercy is shown. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 23. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on on her who had not obtained mercy. There it is again. He's reversing the lo ruhama. No mercy, but I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, there it is, lo ami, not my people. But I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. And by the way, he works the name of the first child in there too, Jezreel, which meant God will scatter. But now it takes on a different meaning as if God will scatter seed and a harvest will be be, be uh, reaped. God will scatter his children to grow and, pl- and prosper and blossom once again. And so Hosea's prophecy is a message of judgment to an adulterous people where judgment is pronounced upon them, their privileges are stripped away from them because of disobedience, they are pronounced to no longer be the people of God, no longer have God's mercy upon them, and yet Hosea turns right around and by the Spirit of God pronounces blessing upon them, a restored blessing. God's mercy promised to God's people. And the language of this 
restoration reflects God's promise to Abraham. Back to chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That goes right back to Genesis 12 and 15 and the promises to Abraham that his seed would be a multitude like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And so the merciful reversal of promised judgment is declared and the merciful reversal of promised judgment is restated. First declared in chapter 1 verse 10 and then restated in chapter 2 verse 23. And it's obvious in all of this that Hosea has the people of Israel in view, both northern and southern kingdom. He even talks about them coming back together again, having been separated, but God is going to gather them. And so the judgment is pronounced upon both Israel and Judah. All of these curses are pronounced upon both. You are no longer my people. I will no longer have mercy upon you. And yet, I will. I will have mercy upon you again. And you shall be called my people again. Thirdly, we shall consider the New Testament use of Hosea's prophecy. The New Testament use of Hosea's prophecy. And Hosea's prophecy is quoted twice in the New Testament scriptures. First by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And second by Peter in 1 Peter 2.10. Our text for today. But Paul... In Romans chapter 9, also quotes the same prophecy, and we need to look at this. And Paul, like Peter, applies this prophecy to the church. No question about it. Look at it carefully. Here's the prophecy quoted in Romans 9.25. As he says also in Hosea, I will, can't be any question about this, can it? What he's quoting, he says in Hosea, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. A very exact quotation of what we have just read in Hosea. Now, what is Paul saying here? And we'll have to back up a little bit. You recall that Romans chapter 9 is probably the most extended passage in all the Bible on the sovereignty of God and salvation. We don't have time to work through that whole passage. But we'll pick up at verse 22 where Paul talks about vessels of wrath. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Vessels of wrath. And as you see what Paul is saying in the context, it's clear he's talking about Jews as well as Gentiles who fit into this category of vessels of wrath. He talked about Pharaoh earlier using this same kind of language. Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath. But he also talks about unbelieving and stubborn Israel, whom God has been exceedingly long-suffering toward. But though God has put up with them for a long time, they are vessels of wrath. Again, verse 22, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, Endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But then in verse 23 and 24, he talks about vessels of mercy. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
So vessels of mercy called from both Jews and Gentiles. Vessels of wrath, both Jews and Gentiles. But vessels of mercy called out of these who are vessels of wrath. And they too are both Jews and Gentiles. And they are, of course, the church of the living God. Even us, says Paul. And then to support this activity by God, why God would do such a thing, Paul quotes from Hosea. This is the explanation. As he says also in Hosea, verse 25, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. This is the explanation for the church. This is the explanation for... Why God called people both from Jews and Gentiles to become his people. Because it fulfills the prophecy of Hosea. Is what Paul appears very clearly to be saying. In fact, to delve into it a little bit deeper, I think this is what it seems to be saying. Israel has lost its privileged status and become, in effect, Gentile. If Israel is no longer the people of God, as God said through Hosea, and therefore those who remain persistently in stubbornness and disbelief and reject the cornerstone are still in that category, they are no longer the people of God, well, if, if they're not the people of God, Israel is the special people of God, the chosen people of God. If they're not the people of God, then what are they? In essence, they are Gentiles. They're no different from the Gentiles. In fact, we could even say they're Gentiles. They're basically now in the same category. Israel has lost its privileged status and in effect become Gentile. But if God chooses to show mercy to Israel, even after they have forfeited their privileges and become Gentiles, as Hosea tells us, but that's what God's going to do. God's going to choose to show mercy to them again. If God is going to do that to people who have, in essence, become Gentile, then why should we be surprised? Why should we think it's strange if he chooses to show mercy to other people who've been Gentile all along, to those who are racially Gentile? You get the picture of what Paul is saying? See what Paul's saying? You understand if God, in mercy, chooses to reverse his pronouncement of judgment upon a people, Israel, who have, in essence, made themselves Gentiles by their disobedience and forfeiting their privileges and breaking the covenant that was made to them, but if God says, I'm going to show mercy to them again, these who have, in essence, become Gentiles, then why should it be thought strange if God does the same thing to other people who've been Gentiles all along? And sure enough, that's what God does. That's exactly what he does. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And what Paul, I think, is saying is this, that everyone who enters the new covenant comes as a Gentile. Everyone who enters the new covenant comes as a Gentile. That is, someone who recognizes that they have no claim on the mercy of God. That was the Jews' big problem, wasn't it? They thought they had a claim upon the mercy of God. But God doesn't 
let anyone come to him in that kind of pride and presumption, saying, I have a right, I, I have an ode to me, I have inherited the right to be a child of God, I am a descendant of Abraham. No, everyone who enters the new covenant comes humbly like a Gentile, acknowledging, I have no mercy, I'm not the people of God, I have no claim upon your mercy. I'm a Gentile dog, like the Syrophoenician woman, but even the, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall, fall off the master's table. It's got, we've got to come with that kind of humility, whether we're Jew or Gentile. In other words, Jews essentially have to acknowledge that they really have no claim upon the mercy of God any longer, that that's not their right, that's not their birthright. They forfeited that long ago, but by their disobedience, by their adultery by their sordid, awful history. But if they will come and acknowledge their undeserving condition and seek mercy through Christ, of course they will be received, as will Gentiles. really makes no difference whether Jew or Gentile. Everybody's got to come the same way. Everybody's got to come, in essence, as a Gentile. And that may explain the baptism of John. I don't know that it necessarily needs any further explanation, but it very well could be linked, and I'm being cautious in my language here, but it very well could be linked to the Jewish practice of proselyte baptism. And that's well known. When, when a Gentile became a Jew, a full-fledged Jew, he had to undergo a ritual cleansing, a, a proselyte baptism. He had to be cleansed as a symbol that he was a defiled Gentile. He was dirty all over by birth, by, by background, by everything. And so this, this plunging into the water as a ritual washing before he could become a Jew. But you see, when John came along... He was baptizing everyone who was willing to repent. All had to repent. All had to be baptized. Why? Because all were sinful. All were guilty. All had forfeited their claim to God's mercy. All needed to be cleansed. All needed to take the place of a Gentile. All needed to undergo proselyte baptism, as it were, this ritual cleansing. Maybe. Maybe that's included in John's baptism. That's only supposition. But Paul obviously applies Hosea's prophecy to the church. No question about that. Now we go back to Peter. Peter does the same thing. Peter also applies Hosea's prophecy to the church, doesn't he? We've already seen it. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter applies this text to the church, and he quotes from Hosea 2.1 and 23. He quotes rather freely. He restates this in his own language, but there can be little doubt where Peter is taking this language from. And he calls the church, the people of God, interestingly, not even a people of God, the people of God. Not a people of God as if there is one and now two, but the people of God. Now let me quote from three commentators and what they say about Peter's prophecy and the New Testament use of Hosea's prophecy by Peter. 
John MacArthur says, and I quote, In principle, Peter applied to the church the prophet's words concerning the Jews. In principle, Peter applied to the church the prophet's words concerning the Jews. I'm not sure what he means by in principle. That may be a little bit of a hedge for him there, but he acknowledges that this is clearly Peter applying Hosea's prophecy, Hosea's words about Israel to the Jews. Uh, let me read a couple of more extended statements from Wayne Grudem. He says, and I quote, Peter says God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. He further says, quote, Peter takes these quotations from contexts which repeatedly warn that God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him, who reject the precious cornerstone which he has established. What more could be needed to say with assurance that the church has become the true Israel of God. End quote. That's what Wayne Grudem says. And now I quote Edmund Hebert. A little bit of uh, balance to swing back the other direction for those of you who might be feeling a little concerned at this point. And I quote Edmund Hebert, an excellent commentator. Quote, clearly Peter establishes a parallel between Israel and the church. It does not naturally follow that Peter believed the church has permanently replaced Israel and that Israel will not again enjoy a separate existence under the favor of God, end quote. So the way you view this, I think, uh, is very much influenced by your eschatology. And Hebert, I would take it, is a premillennialist, and Grudem, I would take it, is an amillennialist. And uh, that's why you find the difference the slight difference in their perspective, but everybody agrees, no matter what their millennial position is, all serious Bible scholars agree that the language of Peter is the language of God in the Old Testament that applied to Israel. There can be no question about that. Number four. What is the purpose of this passage? Now, I don't want us to lose sight of the main purpose of the passage as we're getting caught up in theological and premillennial and eschatological questions. What is the purpose of the passage? Well, it is to impress Christians with the greatness of their blessings. Christians have blessings equally as great as the blessings promised to Old Testament Israel. In fact, Christians have blessings that even exceed those that were promised to Old Testament Israel. Number two, it is to impress Christians with the undeserved nature of these blessings. We need to be reminded again and again in so many different ways that these great blessings that have come to us are totally undeserved. If we are saved, if we are God's people, if we are in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, if we are in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, why are we there? Is it because we deserve to be there? Not at all. We had no claim upon the mercy of God. We had no claim to be considered the people of God. We had no claim to consider that God ought to show mercy upon us. Thirdly, to remind the church of our separation from the world. When God made us his people, he took us from out of the world and made us different from the people of the world. We are different from those around us who do not have these privileges. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are his own special people. We are the people of God. 
And that can only be said of those who are born again by the grace of God. Only can be said of those who are in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is to show the purpose for these blessings. Why has God bestowed such blessings on such undeserving people? Why has God done this? Back to verse 9. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's the reason. All of these blessings weren't given to us so that we could just soak up the blessings, bask in the blessings, revel in the blessings, enjoy the blessings. We can do all that, praise God for it. But let's remember the purpose of it all. Why did God do this? (coughs) You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. For what reason? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are we recipients of such great blessings? It is to bring praise to the one who granted us such great blessings. In other words, what Peter is reminding us is that salvation is first about God and not first about us. Salvation is first and foremost about God and only secondly about us. It is about us and we are so grateful and there's there's so much that we have received, and we need to understand these blessings. But let's not forget, let's not forget that the whole scheme of salvation was designed to bring glory to God, not to man. God has chosen to include us. God has chosen to use us. God has made us vessels of mercy rather than vessels of wrath, and he could just as much have designated us vessels of wrath, and he would be perfectly just and righteous in doing so. But God, in his great love and mercy, has made us vessels of mercy, but it is to bring glory and honor to him. All praise to him who reigns above in majesty supreme, who gave himself for man to die, that he might man redeem. And so we are to declare his praises, is the way Peter puts it, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you are to declare a word that means make widely known. That's our purpose, to make widely known the praises, or maybe a better translation, is the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to make widely known the excellencies of God. Excellencies. The word really means his eminence, his virtues, his perfections, his triumphs, his wonderful deeds. If you are an object of these wonderful deeds of mercy and grace and salvation, which God has done for millions of undeserving people, if you are one of them, upon whom God has bestowed such mercy, then what are you to do? You are to declare, you are to publish, you are to make widely known the greatness of God, the virtues of God, the excellencies of God, the triumphs of God, the mighty deeds of God, what God has done in Christ Jesus to save undeserving sinners, what God has done for you, an undeserving object of his mercy. That's the whole purpose of it all. 
But now having said that, let's go back for a moment and touch upon how to understand all of this in regard to Israel and the church. And there are basically, I think, three ways to look at it. The first one we will call illustration, the second one we will call replacement, and the third one we will call primary fulfillment. This idea that the church has inherited the blessings that were promised to Israel. Some see this as an illustration. That God's dealings with Israel illustrate God's dealings with the church. They do not terminate the promises that were made to Israel, but they serve as a wonderful illustration of other aspects of God's grace. Illustration. God's dealings with Israel illustrate God's dealings with the church. And those who take that position would generally be premillennialists. A second position we might call replacement. It seems to me like only those who are teaching against this call it replacement. I don't know anybody who teaches or believes this who's ever called it replacement. But nevertheless, there is an element of replacement here. And the idea is that the church has replaced Israel. National Israel has lost her favored position. Spiritual Israel, that is the remnant, the elect people of God within the nation of Israel, spiritual Israel has been absorbed into the church, and the church, Jew and Gentile, has become spiritual Israel. That's another way to understand these texts. A third way is what I would call primary fulfillment. Not necessarily total replacement, but primary fulfillment. In other words, the church has fulfilled promises to Israel. That, I think, is difficult to deny. The church has fulfilled promises that were made to Israel. But that is primary fulfillment of these prophecies. That does not completely close the door to future fulfillment, a second fulfillment. It does not completely close the door to future dealings with national Israel, but, and here I think we have to understand, the scriptures do not, no longer require that. Because if these promises find fulfillment in the church, and that is the biblically stated fulfillment, then whether there will be a secondary fulfillment or not remains to be seen. We cannot be sure. I think in my last message I said something like, uh, in regard to the future of Israel, I'm not sure. And someone took that to mean that I have no idea what the Bible, <laughs> what premillennialists believe about the future of Israel. Believe me, friends, I know exactly. I, that was me for many years. I know exactly. But I have come to not be so certain that that is true. It may be. I don't think we can totally rule it out. But I think we have to recognize something here, folks. There are many statements in the New Testament that apply these promises that seem, in their Old Testament context, seem to apply only to national Israel, but Christ and Paul and Peter and the writers of New Testament Scripture regularly apply them to the church. And show us that these promises find fulfillment in the church. And therefore I say, this is primary fulfillment. The church has fulfilled promises made to Israel. But I don't think we can say that's completely closed the door to the possibility of future dealings with national Israel. But it certainly 
removes the requirement for them. We cannot say God must do that. God's got to do that. He made these promises to national Israel. He must fulfill them uh, literally in the land. Well, if he chooses to fulfill them in a different way, as it appears that he has, then how can we say God can't do that? And this understanding shows that there has been a shift from the national to the international, from the physical to the spiritual, from an earthly kingdom to a heavenly kingdom. Though, of course, it will all culminate upon the earth. Both pre- and amillennialists believe that. From lesser promises and blessings to greater promises and blessings, even greater than those that were envisioned by Israel in the Old Testament. I'm convinced, and this is my own interpretation and understanding of Romans chapter 11, I'm convinced from Romans chapter 11 that God has, has indicated a great ingathering of ethnic Jews, that is racial Jews, before the second coming of Christ. I think there's going to be a huge revival of ethnic Israel before Christ returns. But to say that God's going to do that with ethnic Israel is not the same as saying that this is going to find national fulfillment in an earthly kingdom in a geographical location. Possibly, maybe, but not necessarily. It may simply be a great revival of Jewish people coming into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, swelling, swelling the uh, ranks of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with many of the physical seed of Abraham. Now, what our text has done today has brought us to a great divide among Christians. (laughs) And if we didn't want to deal with controversy, we'd skip over it lightly and move on to the next verse, wouldn't we? But something about my um, understanding of how I'm supposed to deal with Scripture doesn't allow me to do that. I have to lay it out and uh, plow through it the best I can. It's a great divide among Christians, and I think that's unfortunate. I don't think there should be such a great divide among Christians. Premillennialists cannot seem to understand how anyone can ignore the myriads of Old Testament texts that promise future blessings to Israel, promises that relate to the restoration of Israel, an earthly kingdom to Israel, Christ on David's throne. Premillennialists just can't understand how anybody can ignore all those texts. There's so many of them. Amillennialists, on the other hand, cannot understand how anyone can ignore the many Old Testament references to broken covenants, unmet conditions, forfeited blessings, coupled with many New Testament references to the church inheriting blessings originally promised to Israel. Amillennialists have a hard time understanding how anybody can miss all that. And so back and forth we go. Both camps tend to view the other camp as ignoring Scripture and forcing an interpretation to fit their preconceived ideas. It seems that neither one wants, in many cases, wants to allow the other side might be endeavoring to honestly understand the Word of God as it's given, to, to receive it, to believe it, to interpret it, correctly as God has given it. It seems to me, personal opinion, that the fulfillment passages are weighty and undeniable. 
Ones like this one before us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And there are many, many others. We've dealt with some of them at previous times. There are many passages in the New Testament. We haven't begun to touch them all from this pulpit. Many passages that speak of fulfillment, promises made to Israel, fulfilled in the church. It seems to me that fulfillment passages are weighty and undeniable. That many of these promises, if not all of them, have been fulfilled in the church. Why do I say so? Because the New Testament says so. I wouldn't say that. And others wouldn't say that. Without scripture. That isn't what I thought for many years. It was only as the multiplication of these texts started weighing on me, as I was dealing with them exegetically from the New Testament and taking them back and seeing what they were talking about in the Old Testament, and here's one, and here's another, and here's another, and here's another, and here's another, and here's another. And finally, the accumulation of these things began to dislodge me from the notion that, that uh, amillennialism was, was just spiritualizing away the Word of God and not dealing honestly with Scripture and uh, was forcing an interpretation into a preconceived theology. No, this is trying to deal honestly with the New Testament text. Perhaps this passage in Hosea can help show us the way. What did we see in Hosea? In regard to Israel, promises forfeited. No question about that. Promises forfeited. Blessings forfeited. Covenants broken. Conditions unmet. And God says so and pronounces judgment upon them and says, because of this, you are no longer my people and I will no longer show you mercy. But then, as we see in Hosea, God turns around and cancels that judgment. God overturns his own judgment upon Israel. But if God overturns his judgment, it's clear that the people of Israel have no claim upon God to fulfill those original promises in the way that he might have originally made them, in the way that they originally understood them to be. Now God is, as it were, free to fulfill them any way he wants to because the uh, requirement of his first initial promises, which were conditional, have been broken. So if God chooses to fulfill them in a different way than what might have been originally understood, why can't God do that? Israel forfeited their blessings. God said, but I will show mercy nonetheless. But God is no longer bound by previous language because Israel has clearly forfeited that. So if God now wants to fulfill in a different way, why shouldn't he be free to do that and still be considered completely just? That's what I see. Let me give you a little illustration. Let's suppose that a father says to his boy, he's about a entering his sophomore year in high school. Son, if you are obedient to your parents, make good grades, do what I tell you to do, when you graduate from high school, I'm going to buy you a Ford Focus, brand new. And over the next three years, the son 
makes lousy grades, gets into all kinds of trouble, disobeys his parents, doesn't come close to meeting the requirement. He forfeits the promise. He graduates from high school, has no right to expect anything. And then his father graciously says, Son, I'm going to give you a brand new Corvette. Wow. Has the father broken his promise? (laughs) Not the way I see it. Has the father fulfilled his promise? Yes, and so much more. I think we should see that the church is greater than national Israel. I think we should see that the spiritual blessings promised to the church are so much greater than any blessings that were promised to Israel. I think we should see that what God is doing in the church is so much bigger and greater than anything that was envisioned by Israel. I think we should understand that God is fulfilling his promises, that he has no requirement to fulfill, actually, because the way Israel has broken them. But God is fulfilling them, and he's giving them a Corvette instead of a Ford Focus. That's what a great, gracious, and glorious God, God is. Maybe that will help. Shall we pray? Father, we confess that there are many things in your word that are puzzling to us and continue to be. We know we don't understand a small portion of all that is there. And we delight in the privilege of studying your word and trying to understand it better. Lord, help us to be humble and gracious in doing so and gracious to others who may not see things exactly the way we do. We do understand about your mercy and salvation. We do understand the undeserved nature of the grace that has come to us. We do understand, O Lord, the requirement that we proclaim the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. O Lord, we understand that. We have no trouble understanding that requirement, that responsibility, that privilege. So, Lord, help us to do so to the honor and praise and glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.